0: Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm, that's ancho rfm click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you, we see you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Stage Door from 1937 with my wonderful guests Kat Day, Zoe Palco, and Brianne Wilson. Welcome to Talk Classic To Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and this week I am talking about the film Stage Door from 1937 with some wonderful guests. I have Kat Day here, I have Zoe Palco, and I have Brian Wilson. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for being here. So we watched Stage Door, as I just mentioned. What did you think? How did you feel? Also, whose first time was this? Has anyone not seen this before? So Brian and Zoe had not seen this before, okay. So how, how did you feel? First impressions.
1: Acting is such a warm, loving profession. (laughs) So nurturing, totally just all the warm feelings. Yeah.
2: So many times I thought, oh my God, I don't miss being an actor. Also, I love cats. Like, those were my two main takeaways. (laughs) And Brianna's referring to,
0: like, Cats the Animal and not Cats the Musical.
2: Yeah. Um, We no disrespect
0: to the musical. Um, Cat Day, uh, you had seen this before. In fact, you had mentioned you own this DVD. How was your experience this time?
3: I do own it. Um, It was funny because I hadn't seen it in forever. And I go, I don't remember how this movie ends. And then when it ended, I was like, that's why. Because the ending (laughs) is just terrible. So that's (laughs) kind of what I took away from this rewatch was
0: the ending. I was like, "Eh." okay, so this is an RKO picture, which is ironic because Lucy, Lucille Ball is in this film. And one day she would go on to own RKO. And this was like her first big film. So that's like just fun, full circle, Lucille Ball. Um, I have to tell you all why I chose this film First of all, just in general, I don't think this podcast is coming out in March, but it is March right now, which means that it's Women's History Month. So we're watching this film that has a really strong female cast and was also conceived by a female author, uh, Edna Ferber. Um, So even though the screenplay was not by her, the original stage play and a lot of the roles were. Um, So there's that. Uh, Everyone here on this call is or has been a professional actress at one point. So I thought that would be absolutely fascinating to have kind of all of us doing this vibe like they had from the movie, where it's all these actresses with different like pasts and stories coming together and having fun, sometimes and sometimes not. <laughs> we're gonna have <laughs> we're gonna have no baggage at
1: all with this episode. Nope, no, not nothing. No, no scars not, or anything. Nope.
0: Um, and then also just a fun fact: in college, this was one of my go-to monologue pieces. Anytime we had like a oh. '30s or '40s play. <laughs> I used um Terry's monologue. It's Is not it? in the film. Not a lily's. In oh. the I wish. <laughs> <But> in <laughs> the film, there's this monologue where she's like telling the girls about her day where she breaks into the office of Mr. Burger. Not Mr. Powell, because in the in the play it was Mr. Burger. And she was like, Mr. Burger, Mr. Burger. And I did the whole I had that whole monologue. She like reenacted for them the scene that went down because it didn't actually take place in his office. Ooh. So that was like my go-to. What? you can't take it with you auditioning mm-hmm. for monologue. You know what I mean? Why do you think um, they changed the name? There was a Mr. Berger here. So like mm-hmm. there was a Mr. Berger at the Grotto Club. And I was like, are they paying homage to the play? So there was that. And also I just want to mention, it's very interesting before I even get into the plot synopsis, this play um, is completely different apparently from the film. So like I remember reading the play in college because I did the monologue and like wanted to know because, you know, I was... I'm a Hermione it's just a fact so I know I read it in college I could tell you nothing about it but apparently the film is completely different from the play so much so that George S. Kaufman the original like author of the play with Edna Ferber joked that it should have been called Screen
2: Door I read I was reading up on it like reading all the trivia after I watched it too and they're like everyone was saying there. it's really drastically different like the monologues are all different the end is different. But the plot is all different. They just kept the character names. Like, that was it.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um.
3: So yeah,
0: yeah like, the K still, spoiler alert, Kay still does commit suicide. But like, everything is very, very different. And then there's also a radio play version, which I've actually heard a lot, because they play it on the radio station. I listen to the old classic radio. And they've changed the whole plot. They've condensed it all, so they've combined a bunch of characters. So, like, in that radio play, Ginger Rogers, her character is also Lucy's character. And she has Lucy's ending. And then I think in that radio play, Catherine Hepburn is the one that falls in love with the producer. And uh, it's like they twist everything around, but Kay also still dies. In every version, Kay does die. Kay kicks it. And one more fun thing about the radio play is that Eve Arden plays the villain in it. So she's, like, the super fun character in this one, but in that one she uses like her sarcastic voice and is the I forget the character's name and this is it Linda whoever that yes. character is that we don't like she plays that one um so anyway that that's like the lowdown of the movie as translated on radio and what it came from the play version. Okay so we've covered that now we're gonna get into the plot synopsis. So people at home this is what the film is about in case you were wondering there will be spoilers If you don't wanna hear the spoilers, then maybe go watch the movie first. Okay, so this film is about the Footlights Club in New York. I don't know if this is an actual club, but it sounds like it's based on something. So that's cool. What that basically means is that it's a bunch of like actresses, dancers, singers, performers, all living under one roof, trying to make it on Broadway. Um, and some of them will make it, and some of them will not. It seems like the ones that make it have come from a wealthy background and have financial security and aren't super worried about their future. Um, but basically, <laughs> the the main plot surrounds um, a dancer played by Ginger Rogers named Jean Maitland and um, an actress played by Katherine Hepburn named Terry... What's her last name? Terry... Randall? Randall. Terry Randall. Randall. They yeah, all have Randall. great names. Kay Hamilton, Terry Randall. Like their names are all great. Um, so anyway, uh Terry is wealthy and comes to the Footlights Club. We're kind of in her shoes. The club is being introduced to her as we're learning about the club. And it's all these like really fun, raucous, autonomous, independent ladies trying to make it in their career. Terry like she's rich and her dad wants her to fail. So he ends up paying a producer to give her a really good part, which has totally happened for all of us. And um, she gets <laughs> the part. if
2: I had a nickel. Right?
0: <laughs> and it turns out, you guys, she's a terrible actress. But she's also incredibly obnoxious and rude throughout the beginning. Like, she's she's never acted before and yet she's telling everybody else what to do and how they're wrong and it's really annoying. How can I do two things at the same time? Oh God, she's the awful. So she she has this role. She's terrible. And then the other side story is um, Jean Maitland is Ginger Rogers' character and she kind of sees some of the women around her. She doesn't have a lot of respect for women who are with men for possessions and money. She does not have a lot of respect for that and she doesn't want to do it. So her journey is kind of like this opportunity presents itself where like a wealthy man wants to support her. And she's like, you know what? I'm sick of being broke. Sure, I'll do it. So it's kind of like their two journeys of finding their way back to themselves and um, finding out if they, you know, really have the grit to make it on Broadway. And then there's another character named Kay who is doomed from the start. She is a Beth. If this was Little Women, this girl is a Beth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everybody loves her. She's so sweet. She's the most talented of all of them. She's trying. She's trying so hard. And she's, like, starving herself um, because she doesn't want to have to, like, she feels so bad that she can't pay her rent that she doesn't want to not have to pay for food. It's really sad. Um, Anyway. So there's this incredible part that she was supposed to get, but Terry ends up getting it because her dad paid for it. And Kay is like so distraught by this. She like coaches Terry in the role, and then the opening night, she just can't take it, and she commits suicide. But her committing suicide somehow makes Katherine Hepburn a good actor all of a sudden. Oh, and I should mention, Katherine Hepburn is a good actor. Let me apologize. Um, It makes Terry all of a sudden a good actor, (laughs) because as everyone knows, trauma apparently makes you a good actor. and Terry is a success, and her play is a hit, and um at the end of the play it's like Lucille Ball was a character in it and she goes off and gets married so she like leaves the house and it's like Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn being like well like a new person comes in and they're like I'd like to see about accommodations and Katherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers are just like well you know here we go again like cycle continues the life man the acting we're a,
1: we're a different breed than the rest of them Ha-ha. they do
0: they yeah <laughs> We'll get to that line too, because I actually want to talk about the line that they say. So that's basically stage door. Let's dig in. The first thing I think I want to talk about, like the biggest question, the biggest thing that this movie deals with is like, what it's like to be an actress and the underbelly of all that and what that really entails. (laughs) So hello, fellow actresses, let's dive in. (laughs) Uh,
3: Yeah. When I started watching this, I thought of, I don't know if you guys know the story of Peg and Twistle. this was in the thirties and I always thought she was somehow an inspiration for this play. She was this actress, uh, who moved to Hollywood and it was the story we all go through the audition that she almost would get. And she got drunk one night, climbed up to the Hollywood sign and killed herself, jumped off the H or the O. And then, but the crazy thing was the day she was found, there was a telegram, like offering her a leading role in a movie. No. Yeah. And she oh she God. did one movie and they actually, what's, this is such a Hollywood thing I think that still happens today, was she did a small part in a movie that was never going to be released. They ended up releasing the movie that year. Kind of like, oh, well, for Peg, here's the movie that was never going to be released. And it to me, when I was watching it, because I... I I tell this story at work weirdly because it's a Hollywood story. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if Peg Entwistle was somehow an inspiration for this because she died in the early 30s and this came out in late 30s. But that's what I thought of. And it just literally how I just think as an actor in general, male, female, we put all our eggs in a basket and every audition is life or death. And auditioning, I say, is the job,
1: but it doesn't pay the bills. So it's like you get to that point where you're like. I like Um, how it really touched on (laughs) this <laughs> is like, I'm not coming into this with baggage at all, but I feel like it it really dives into and isn't afraid to show more of the underbelly of it. It's not all glitz and glamour and you just happen to bump into a producer one day and not your star. Like, it really commits to the other direction, which I appreciate. Like, it really does say that it, it is luck. It is its not fair um it is who you know it is how you play the game it is all these things that you know i think it's i mean i'm assuming at the time really wasn't talked about a ton so it's nice to see that displayed (laughs) because like it, it did ring true in a lot of ways and i think it's still true today You know, you don't just go to Hollywood and get discovered. You don't go to New York and get discovered. Like a lot of people go and a lot of people fail. So it's just, yeah, I think that it was, um, it was nice to see. And I also liked how, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but another really thing that, that really struck me is that the dialogue in it is so iconic. It's so quippy and brilliant. And it has that improv feeling to it, which I know like director is really big with. And there's all these, um, like, comebacks all the time. Mm. And they're, like, they can read really mean, but it never reads cruel. Like, you can tell they're all on the same team fighting this, like, Goliath that just isn't fair, but for whatever reason, they can't say no to it. So, like, there's cattiness and there's fighting, but at the same time, there's, like, it never felt cruel and mean to me. It was always this, like, underlying, like, we're we're on the same team like we get each other like i don't like you but like it's never it was never cruel which i like there's an acknowledgement of each other's wit so even
0: that relationship of like ginger rogers and linda's character i think her name's gail patrick the actress who plays her their characters don't like each other their characters are like dating the same man but they're not really um what's it called they're not getting in each other's way like gail Mm -hmm. patrick is even telling her what's coming next and like there's that moment at the end they show between them where there's like almost, it reminds me of the end of Mean Girls where they're like, and then there was peace in the jungle. So like, it's like they can see each other. <laughs> they can acknowledge each other. They don't really like each other, but they can match wits and they like respect each other. There's like that kind yeah. of vibe.
2: That first scene between Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn is just brilliant I took so many notes and like it's up there with you know Petruchio and Kate and Beatrice and Benedict of the witty volleying back and forth and that it could easily be cruel but it's not because Mm -hmm. it's so as Zoe was saying so witty I bet you boil a terrific pan of water (laughs) I mean that is creme de la creme of witty volleying back and forth in a scene but so true to the lives of actresses of but we're also in this together the reason
0: ginger rogers does not respect her right off is one she gets the rich vibe of like oh my god you come from money you've never had to work and you're spouting your opinions left and right about acting this is obnoxious and two you have a grandfather um well maybe she doesn't know she's rich but she thinks she has a quote unquote grandfather which to ginger rogers that's like the lowest you can get like turning to a man to provide for you um is like the lowest you can get in her opinion so that's like the vibe she's gotten from katherine Hepburn. so even with all of that even not liking her she still like offers her a sleep mask i also want to add the quote that i loved in that scene we started off on the wrong foot let's stay that way and i was like that's so oh it's
1: so good so many and i feel like even though there's some like she doesn't like her because of principle she also it's like she's digging your heels in like I made a decision not to like you, but you can tell that she likes her like you can tell there's that connection there because there's that respect of how they communicate and how quick witted she is and how smart she is. They're they're volleying back and forth so well, you can like and that's why it works so well their chemistry is so amazing and you can tell despite her predisposition to be like, I don't respect you because you check this box for me that this is why I don't like you box. You can tell there's that connection there, which is why it's so wonderful to watch it. It's not just two people being mean to each other. It's so much more interesting than that, which is cool.
2: It's just this sort of scene where you go, oh my God, even though I hung up my hat years ago, I'm like, oh, I want to do that scene. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a good one.
3: In either character, I don't care which one. (laughs) Later um, in the movie, when she's playing with her fur and then she catches her with it, Ginger Rogers drop of like emotion of like, oh, I, I didn't think you're gonna be home and it's it's okay. And then when she gives her permission to wear it, that like moment of she drops her mask of like, oh, I want to hate her, but I love her, you know? And I, that's where this, again, their chemistry is so good. And I think it's also a testament to Catherine Hepburn because I was like, like you ramble, I was looking at, Trivia and stuff how I guess Catherine Hepburn really had to fight to get more screen time and also even get like her name on the movie and I was like good for her because it's almost like she was her character like no I need this, but also I think it's a testament to Ginger Rogers and the other women to be like let's support women bringing up women. You know, So there are so many things that I want to break down with everything
0: we're talking about. First of all, I have that quote because you know that I read Katherine Hepburn's autobiography, Me. <laughs> so she has a portion about that in here where she talks about this film. And this film happened during a lull in her career when she was deemed box office poison. And she was deemed box office poison because at the time there were like all these independent theaters. And if you were a certain actor that was in like a smaller dramatic film that didn't do well in that theater, the theaters didn't want to show you, but they like had to legally and they knew they would lose money on you. So it like wasn't Katherine Hepburn's fault. It was technically like the studio's fault for making like crappy pictures and then forcing the theaters to show them. Um, But (laughs) she was deemed box office poison. No one wanted her in their marquees and no one wanted her in their pictures. So this is pre-Philadelphia story before she saved her own career. Um, So she was like lucky to get this role. Plus she was friends with Pandro Berman. She talks about him a lot in her book, um, who was the producer of this. So she talked to Pandro like, uh, look, I'm doing nothing in this movie. I'm just like the rich, annoying girl. And Pandora was like, listen, Kate, you'd be lucky to be playing the sixth part in this, in a successful picture. So she <laughs> she went to the director and she was like, Gregory, I don't know my character. Who am I? Who's my character? And he's like, your character's a question mark. And she was like, what do you mean? And he's like, we don't know yet. We haven't written it, we don't know. So she like shuts up, gets through the whole picture. And she wrote, shutting up and being jolly was the cleverest thing I ever did. Lakava got sorry for me playing the rich girl and handed me the whole last part of the movie. I had no idea until much later that in the, in the first preview, Ginger Rogers was billed over me. I don't even think the Ginger knew. At this preview, so many cards came back saying the best Katherine Hepburn picture we've seen and she's great. So she said they returned her to her first position. Lucky me. But that's like what she said about it in her book. But I do also want to go back to like the writing of this. So a lot of the writing was totally made up on the spot. So the writers were um, Maury Riskind and Anthony Viler. So what they would do is they would listen to how the actresses spoke in real life and all that overlapping and all those like quick witted jokes. And they would put that into the script and they were writing the script as they went. They did not have like a planned ending. So there were certain things that I think were always going to happen. Like Kay was always going to die. But everything else was kind of like made up as they went and that's why i think i'm so impressed by how well this movie turns out knowing that because i don't usually think that yields good results but it's almost like the director wanting so much improvisation the writers listening to the women because they took on those voices and took in those
1: voices and it was authentic in that way that's like what makes it such a success and the actresses were so confident and so just good in their roles like they knew who they were and when you're that talented, especially comedically, too, and you have that improv um, talent, which not all good actresses have, um, they had that. So they were able to kind of fill out the characters more easily because their, their talent is just through the roof. And it's like a murderer's row of talent. We still, to this day, associate
2: comedic talent with a, a man's world. Like comedy is such a man's world. Improv is such a man's world. Like we still to this day have only so many women breaking through and getting recognition for their skills and not because there's not plenty of women who are skilled and wonderful at comedy and improv. So like what a testament to like be looking at 1937 and to find out this is largely improvised because of the talent of this just huge cast of extraordinary women i want to read the cast list for
0: people at home just in case you know any of these names but the the main cast is katherine hepburn ginger rogers lucille ball in like her first big film role um eve arden uh andrea Leeds plays kay hamilton gail patrick plays uh linda but then you've got like constance collier who's like an older actress who is famous for a really huge long time, star. right huge star. Um you've got I wrote down Ann Miller was in this and she was 14 years old in this picture. And then um Phyllis Kennedy plays uh I think her character name is Hattie. They have all these really supreme character actors who maybe only have one or two lines but who shine in their moments. They take like really ordinary really mundane kind of parts and make them pop and it's they're each given kind of a moment and one of my favorite random moments i don't know the character's name i don't know the actress but there's a part when hattie's character finally she gets a date with a butcher and she's excited about it and she's leaving (laughs) and there's um just like a random actress has a really funny way of saying like hey butch you got a friend he says, uh-uh, and you're like, oh my God, that's the stupidest yeah. line I've ever heard in my life. You just made that funny and memorable. And it was one line. So like they they're talking, it's very meta. They're talking about like characters in this film that are so excited to have one line on stage, and then there are actresses making the most of their one line on this film. So I just wanted to point that out.
3: Oh my gosh. I can only imagine how it was to edit that movie back then. Cause they didn't have the editing stuff they had now and all those one-liners and overlapping and to give everybody a moment. And also didn't seem like there was any drama on that set. They gave them the freedom to just, just make characters and commit to them and then give each other time, not only to play with them, but also respect each other to be like, oh, you
1: have your moment. Go, go. That was great. Keep going, you know? And it's a theme in the movie, too. I mean, Kay, when she didn't get the role that she was meant to have, which ultimately led to her demise, even in that h- horrible, devastating moment when she realized on her birthday, like, let's twist that knife, that she didn't get her dream role and that Catherine Hepburn's character did. And everyone's like, oh, like, screw her. That's awful. That was your part. And she's the one who's like, no, I that's, I I had my part last year. And, and it was a great part, and I haven't ha- worked for a year, but that part I took last year, I took that away from somebody else who wanted it just as bad. We don't own any of these parts. Like, good for her that she got it, you know? And, like, that's a, that was, like, a really beautiful moment. They could have easily been like, ah, fucker, but they didn't. Like, gave that moral compass to the Beth, like, K of the movie, saying, like, no, the industry just really sucks balls, the last uh, movie, Sarah, that you had me on for, but that
2: Zoe and I were both on was for the women, which is only two years after this movie. And I, when I first played it, having not seen it, I'm like, oh, great. It's starting off the same way. Like, look at the women, all being women, bitches be bitches in a room together. But to what you were saying like I when I was reading the trivia with the set of the women the production houses were trying to feed all of this drama to the press of like women not getting along behind the scenes true or not there was all this stuff of like what was happening whereas just two years prior with this film also predominantly women Uh, it it, it just happens to have men in it too unlike the women (laughs) that there was not the same level of like, ooh, what's happening behind the scenes of all of these women working together, which I just found fascinating, especially when it's about actresses. Like what a rife area where
0: you could feed that monster. What I've noticed about media from the past is women were constantly pitted against each other as rivals. And the reason abusive systems have allowed to be kept in place are when they keep women apart from each other and give like different feeds to everybody so like on a movie set where there are rarely any women they try to like isolate women to put them in their place to like essentially harass and abuse them so my experiences whenever I've worked with women literally every time have always been positive there's always going to be a person that's obnoxious that's just a fact of life but normally in my experiences with women and working with
2: women they have always been like positive pleasant Mm -hmm. ones with the women involved I'm more fascinated by the fact that the studios weren't it doesn't seem they were trying to create that narrative that they were with the women. Yes, I totally agree.
0: And I actually do want to add like a topic of mine that I had for talking about in this podcast was women supporting women because it happens in the film, but it also happens in real life um, with a lot of these actresses. So like in the film, there are like several examples of women helping women out, sometimes for their own benefit, like Constance Collier helping out Catherine Hepburn um, or like, well, Kay helping Terry is a great example, Right. She, this was her part, and she sees Katherine Hepburn really fucking it up, and she's like, why don't you try it this way? (laughs) Like, just try this. Maybe look at it this way. I don't know. Um, So, like, that's a great example of people helping people, women helping women. But in real life, like, for example, Ginger Rogers, her mother was integral to Lucille Ball's career. She got this picture because of Ginger Rogers' mom. Ginger Rogers' mom ran, like, an acting school on the RKO lot for, like, up-and-coming actresses. And Lucille Ball was one of her students, and she really loved her and pushed for her. So, like, she got this role as a result of that, and she looked so good in this role as a result, I think, of advice she got from Lila Rogers, which was, like, wear your own clothes, uh, which she did, and she looked absolutely fabulous. Um, And she was very funny. But also, um, there's a story about Lucille Ball and Katherine Hepburn where – Catherine Hepburn was a big fat star at the time and Lucille Ball was supposed to take like these modeling pictures also this is all in the uh, podcast about Lucy that TCM did last year so I'm horribly if you've heard that podcast you're like oh my god Sarah you're (laughs) paraphrasing yes this is from that you can listen to that as well Um, but she was saying uh, she was supposed to be taking these modeling pictures because there was like a photographer on set that day or I forget why it was important that it happened this day and she left her like fake smiley teeth in the dressing room um and she wasn't allowed to go in the dressing room once catherine Hepburn was in the dressing room because of like star rules or some bullshit, and she got really pissed about it because she well she didn't think about catherine Hepburn being in the dressing r- dressing room she thought about the guy that was keeping her from like running in and getting her fake teeth she got really pissed and she took a coffee and she threw it through the window and i guess it landed on catherine Hepburn. <laughs> and catherine <laughs> Hepburn was totally cool about it i was like dude Whatever. Because that could have, like, ended her career. But look, she's in this picture with Catherine Hepburn. Like, no beef. Um, and then, like, the final one, I think, Catherine Hepburn and Constance Collier became really good friends, I think, because of this picture. They were ma- main friends throughout their entire lives. And when Constance Collier died, Catherine Hepburn had taken on her, um, what's it called, like, her aide. Secretary. That, her secretary. Her personal secretary. Um, and she, like, lived with her until she passed away. Like, it's just... They all support each other in different ways. And I think they're all just very strong women who are very secure in themselves. They're all like down-to-earth people. Uh, we had mentioned earlier, we'd started getting into it, and I want to circle back. Um, a lot of this film is about class and class distinction. We had talked about Terry versus Jean. You know, you had mentioned Jean putting on the fur. Jean's probably like never really worn a fur before. Um, so we get the sense that Jean kind of comes up from nothing and Terry comes in with money. To me, it's very telling that Terry is the only one that makes it. And Terry is the only one that has a financial safety net. She knows that if she fails at this career, she will still be a millionaire. Um, so it is very frustrating when she's talking down to the other girls and she's like, well, don't you just want to try? And you're like late for them. It's about life and death and starving and like making a future. And for you, it's about like, well, I'm going to, try my hand at this otherwise i'll just go home and be
1: rich there's a lot of class discussion in the film you know with Catherine hepburn with i forget her name who uh ginger rogers doesn't like linda like she has because she is getting funded somehow um question mark from different avenues from Um, her aunt susan right who's giving her furs yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of talk of class, I think, in in the whole film and commentary on it and I don't think that it's it's so crazy that yeah, the only, one of the only women who come from money. She succeeds. But all you gotta do apparently is have like someone close to you die and then you're a good actress. So it's like, you know, good for you.
3: And that she's like just changing the lines of the play too, when they're like, What does she saying? It's interesting the class thing, but it is something I think that still happens today, is there's a lot of people that do make it industry because of their parents, you know, nepotism and stuff like that. And I I feel sometimes those actors are like, I want to make a point that I'm a good actor and this and that, but this one, it just, it's like you guys said, she she just goes around like, I just want to prove I can do this. I don't know. There's something about the theater. I love it. Like, and (laughs) there's not this like drive that I feel if this was like reinterpreted today, I feel it just be like, no, I really want to prove that I'm a good actor without help, which is what I think most kids of big actors today and stuff like that do. But yeah. It's, it's interesting. The whole, like you said, the ending of the person with the money that was paid for a huge Broadway role. Yeah. And I feel that's something that still happens today too. Cause yeah. how much, how many of these big stars are on Broadway now too? that are kind of basically paying for their role. And she
0: was the only one that felt comfortable advocating because she's the only one for whom nothing was at stake, Mm -hmm. right? So that big scene when she like charges into the producer's office because Kay just passed out, like she says like, it doesn't matter to me, but it matters to that or whatever, I forget the line, but it was basically like, I'm gonna be okay if I don't get this, they're not. But she she has that privilege because of her wealth. And I also almost wonder if she's able to speak to him that way because she sees him as like a wealthy equal. Like everyone else is nervous around him or shy around him or looks up to him. And she's like, I see you for exactly who you are. She's the one who calls out his bullshit about his fake wife and his fake kid. <laughs> you know, she she does see the rich producer for who he is. But also, this film shows really well the rich producer not in a good light, right? Yeah. Like Adif Manju comes off as scum in this film. Ugh. you know? And he takes all the credit for all the accomplishment, right? He literally does no work. He hides in his office all day, gets his shoes shined, doesn't see anybody, (laughs) pretends he's very busy. And then uh, if something's a flop, he's going to pretend he has nothing to do with it. And if something's a hit, he's like, this is my, I did all this. I get the credit. And you're like, wow, you're exactly like what I would expect even today. To me, that really, the only, oh, also the only person he has time to see, remember how he's like, I'm not taking any meetings. I don't care if a girl fainted. The only other person he takes time to see is another cis straight white man who has money. That's it. (laughs) Like, so I don't know. I feel like she speaks his privileged money language and she isn't worried about offending him because she knows she's got a financial backup. But even to your point, Kat, about like people who come up um, and they are like related to famous people and doing well, they do want to be good actors. But again, they probably also have a financial security blanket. So I think it's really, really hard to make it as an actor and not be wealthy. I just think that's true. You have to have a whole other level of hustle and scrappiness. That's why I
2: stopped being an actor. Most of the people I know who've become successful, not to take away from how extraordinarily hardworking they are or talented they are, almost all of them If they weren't related to in some way, shape, or form somebody in the business, they at least had a financial safety net so they could spend their 20s out hustling and auditioning and taking classes and doing the hustle that you, it is a full-time job trying to become an actor in which you are not getting paid. So again, not to take away from their talent, anyone who is successful, like kudos to them for also withstanding all that it takes to become an actor. But I know I left the business very fast because I was like, I'm hungry. yeah, And I just don't have the mental fortitude or the safety net to keep trying. And I commend anyone, whatever background they come from to keep hustling. This movie really does
3: highlight that. I mean, it's a little hinted on in the movie but that time period people were discovered. They literally were my great aunt was discovered doing vaudeville and then was nominated for an Oscar a year later. But like, that doesn't happen anymore. It's also a hint of that a little bit of like, you just have the appealing body or look to a producer wink, wink. Maybe he'll put you in the play. Oh, your dad has money. Great. Let's put you in the play. Well, and there's the whole demeaning aspect of it too. I mean,
0: I always felt like, okay, you get an audition, you need to drop everything, get there, and then what, like, you're very likely going to be rejected. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, it's never, it's usually not for stuff that's fulfilling anyway, you know? (laughs) Like, you're beating yourself up over a tampon commercial. Like, that's not, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That's not healthy. But I also want to put into focus, I guess, something Zoe had said earlier of, like, this movie really shines a light on the fact that the best actors don't always make it right? Mm -hmm. Kay was the best actor, you know, in the house, they were saying, and she doesn't make it. And that's so much, so much of the game is like a lot of times the best actors are shy or sensitive and they don't know how to push themselves out there. And we will never see their performances because we're going to see people who could push through, who could be noticed, who could play the game. Um, So there is that. And then I do want to say just like, I'm always curious about a lot of films seem to glorify the hustle. And I think this film strives, like it, it goes back and forth between glorifying the hustle Um, but showing the the sadistic underbelly. But I do want to bring up, I think the system of acting
1: is abusive, personally. Um, I think it's an abusive system that very much needs to change. Absolutely. I mean, if you would go into any other profession, like any other profession, and you walk into a room and they're immediately like, no, you're too short. Like, that's crazy. Like, it's like, your boobs are too small. Like, it's any other, especially now today where it's so, you know, people are in every other profession are getting more and more woke about these kinds of things that if any of the practices that are are just like the way it is in the performance world would be transferred to corporate America or anything else, like people's heads would explode. But because it's an art form, because it's your passion and you choose to do it, everyone's like, well, you signed up for it. It's fine. Ugh. Like it's, you know, and and I don't think it has to be like that. I really don't think it has to be the way it is. But it's really hard to change things when and the producer in the movie even said he's like, I can't possibly see everybody like he is a scumbag. He doesn't see anybody. And yes, he absolutely is a villain in the film. Absolutely. But some of those things I was like, you're not wrong. There is like I can't I literally can't see anybody. I wouldn't I literally would not have time. Thousands and thousands of people come out. I don't have time to see thousands and thousands of people. And out of those people, there's only these many roles. And for every one role, there's 500 people auditioning for it. Yep. So you can be like, you're too short. Your boobs are too small. I don't like your nose. You remind me of your ex. Like crazy abusive <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah, But you can do it because there's 500 people wanting that tampon commercial. Like, There'll be somebody bananas. else. It's a, it, There's always somebody else. You're always expendable. You always have to keep your head down and take the abuse because you know how expendable you are. and There's 500 people yeah. behind you who would love to be in your shoes. And it's it's a bananas profession, absolutely. It's sometimes like, oh, how many followers
3: on Instagram do you have? This and that, exactly. And I, it was refreshing. I met a casting director two weeks ago. I did some workshop and they were like, I honestly don't care about that. I don't even want you emailing me, following up, sending me a headshot later or like, hey, I'm on, be on this show. She goes, I just want to know that you can act. And I was like, but that's not the industry anymore <laughs> mm-hmm, because yeah. most, every other ones are like, oh, f- give me a follow on Instagram or email me in six months to give me an update if you're real and all that. And it's like, it's like you said, there's so many people and she even said, she goes, you can't live in LA be a co-star actor. She's like, and now with the pandemic, she's like, you can live anywhere and do your self tape. But she's like, there's just too many of you. There's too many. And it's, it's like you said, it comes down to like, I don't know. Yeah. She looks like she could. Yep. Yeah, she looks nice. Let's, let's cast her. Oh, no, I don't like her. She looks like you said, my ex. <laughs> like, and ugh. for people at home, what Kat Day is talking about with co-star
0: acting. So a co-star part is like a really small part that you'll see on a TV show where it's like, they might have two or three lines. It's smaller, but I think you used to be able to like have a career on those. And now- no, no, no! You cannot. No. And in order to even get an agent, you have to have like <laughs> a guest role. Like it's it's kind of you the can't point even of have
3: insurance. You could book a co-star every week and not have health insurance. Yeah. We won't get into that. That's a whole other podcast. Well, and
0: it is telling that of all of us here. So like, I think we're all trained, right? Like I, I, Zoe and I went to acting school together. I was in acting classes with with Kat, and I know that Bri, Bri did Shakespeare, but I, we didn't act together. I, you went to a performing arts high school, right? and i went to nyu and you went to nyu so we were all literally like trained actors here um and only one and a half of us is still acting i say half because i sometimes still do voiceover work (laughs) but like that's kat is the only one of us like still crushing it um, which like, yay, cat, I'm very happy for you. And I hope this is not such a triggering discussion.
3: <laughs> Reminds me every day. Why am I here?
0: <laughs> well, and what I kept saying as abusive earlier, I think I'm also tying into harassment. It's like so easy to have awful working conditions and treat people terribly because they are so expendable. And it's like one of the horrible reasons of like being a woman on set. If you speak up, you don't want to be labeled as difficult. So like you get harassed because you don't, want to be fired it's like it's real and it's i hope it's getting better i think it's getting better with a lot of me too stuff coming out i I look back at, at my career and think of so many jobs where i was harassed and stuck with it because i was like nope this is normal and this is what it's supposed to be like and that's really messed up so so i like that this movie does show the underbelly but I do also kind of wish it add the com- added the comment of like isn't this really messed up and shouldn't this change
1: it doesn't paint it rosily at the end you know it's kind of like and the cycle continues kind of theme where we choose to be here but it was kind of like the look that Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn give each other with kind of like you know well we chose this we're we're of a different ilk it's not this like and we made it it's like we're just going to keep on trudging through. Well, it's not like the death of their friend made them give up the career. Like it
2: just keeps going. And some of those same patterns exist today. Like how little has changed. That and also
3: the stability of the job, like the older character, uh, mm-hmm. what's uh, her Constance. Constance calling But it, like yeah. You can get a job and then not have one and still be poor. The ending kind of is like a little fluffy of like, She's still doing her play, Catherine Hepburn's character and all this stuff, but she's still living there. Why is she still living there when she has the money from her show and this and that? But also, do all those women just stay there forever? Because even if they're booking something, it seems like it's just- a. Well, I'm not going to get paid much, but I'm doing what I love. It's $13 a week with dinner. Including dinner. Including dinner. I
1: was
2: I was jealous. I was like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the thing that's changed in the industry. You can no longer buy and be in a boarding house for $15 a day in New
2: York City. As the resident New York City person here, I was like, man, a week if only I spend more at the coffee shop. How many of them are sharing a bathroom? That's also what I wanted to know. Because I was like, there's a lot of people in
0: that house and it looks like one bathroom. That seems
1: absolutely insane. Good point. Well, Catherine Hepburn asks for a private bath and then Lucille Ball is like, "Ah." There's, like, two maybe in the house. Oof. so
0: there's that. But I did, like, I think the ending is really important, so I, like, want to break that down and have that chat, because it seems like in this world, you have two options. You can get married and have children, or you can be an actress, and those are your only choices. Like, we all expanded. Like, I'm going to grad school, so I went to grad school. Like, you can move forward in other ways now. We don't just have two options. Um, But the line that Ginger Rogers says to Terry is, She'll have kids and we'll have scrapbooks. And Constance Collier, um, when she first meets Katherine Hepburn's character, she pulls out the scrapbook. She pulls out the notices she got from early on in
1: her career. That is the most tragic, like, that's the most tragic thing, I think, in the entire movie. It's so sad to
0: me. (laughs) I want to bring this in because something I was looking for this time, because I had seen this movie, I've seen this movie a bunch and I saw it relatively recently because There's all this stuff, like Lucille Ball's stuff is all coming out now, so they've been doing a lot of features on her, so I feel like they've been showing it a lot. But uh, I looked at Constance Collier's face this time at the end of the film, because like that line is said and you see life go on and all the characters are having this overlapping dialogue and the new girl comes in and the woman who owns the boarding house, who is older, who also is an actress was like, that's Sarah Bernhardt's chair that she sat in before she played Queen Elizabeth and she's moving on. And I looked at Constance Collier's face and she is like heartbroken and crushed. And I was like, oh my God, what does this mean? Is she sad because there's a new talent in town? Is like, what what is this? Is she upset about the cycle of life, like of this life? Like, I was so intrigued by her face in that moment. And I was trying to figure out, like, what it meant. Um, but, like, she's such a fully fleshed out actress that she thought to
2: make a moment for herself at the end that we
0: can decipher in the future.
2: Well, I'm sure there's, I mean, we, now that, you know, we're all of a, of an age, I'd be curious. I'm placing my own interpretation on it. Where, so... From the last time we talked, I was working at an all female company where most of the women were 10 plus years younger than me. And they would be talking about things and the instinct to go, Well, when you get to be my age, or, <laughs> you know, like all, and I, and I learned like I need to not do that. But there was this like, I sometimes would have this sadness of like they're exactly where they need to be in their lives. I was like that when I was their age but I'm wondering if that's like a note that's being played of this, this sadness that you're probably seeing of, she can't stop this pattern that's going to keep happening. She's probably mourning the loss of this, the Beth that everyone loves. And here's another girl comes in, going to follow the same pattern that she couldn't get herself out of. There's still the hope that she'll still be an actress. She's she's not so separated from the pattern there's there's probably a, a a nostalgia plus hope plus like oh there's you're gonna live through this cycle too and wind up where I am plus there's a part of me that's like wait are you also briefly annoyed that this
0: woman is telling the Sarah Bernhardt story wrong or not including you because she cut her off the first time she told it I wanted to add that choice of like if this is a comedy maybe it's not even melodramatic mm. and maybe she's just like ah. Oh you're telling it wrong what you brought in is deeper so we could actually go with that
2: <laughs> did you guys know there was so much money in lumber at this time no oh my god Yeah. knew and that lumber was in Seattle <laughs> like I guess rain trees all there's makes a sense. lot of forest but I, I wrote I, I think I took a note where I was like isn't this well beyond the industrial revolution why is there is there that much in lumber? I'm very fascinated by this being the, like, finance bro of the 1930s or lumberman. Yeah. The actor that played that role. So
0: there's this part of the plot where, like, Lucy's character... um Judy is still very much tied to her hometown of Seattle. And like she's always talking on the phone to someone from Seattle and every night she goes out with somebody from Seattle so she can have a decent dinner. And they mentioned like how, what a bore it is to have to like go out with these men and dance with them but like they're hungry and they wanna eat. So she ends up marrying one of them and she marries the one she met in the first scene, Milbanks, that's why they say his name 8,000 times. So at the end they can have the payoff of when she's like, and I'm Mrs. Milbanks. Here's the fun part. The actor that plays that is Jack Carson. And there's another actress in this film, Eve Arden. They're both in Mildred Pierce, which Kat and I discussed. And Mildred Pierce uh, Pierce had Anne Blythe in it, who is Kat Day's aunt. So we have a connection, a full circle aunt. Great aunt. All connected. Um, So we have a full circle Mildred Pierce connection moment. And I was like, whoa, because I hadn't recognized him before. And this time I
3: I caught that too. I was like, oh, oh, it's Mildred Pierce family. Mildred Pierce family all up in here.
2: I'm embarrassed to admit that I spent a good portion of the movie trying to figure out who was Lucille Ball, not who's Lucille Ball. Obviously I know who Lucille Ball is, but (laughs) you have, I have such an image, this iconic image and in color in my head that the whole like first scene, I'm like, wait,
1: is that Lucy?
2: Is that Lucy? Is that, which one's Lucy? And I spent I'm just embarrassed by how much I was like, well, obviously that's Katherine Hepburn. I know who Katherine Hepburn is. I know who Ginger Rogers is. Everybody else, I was like, which one's Lucy? And it, eventually I figured it out. Lucy, yes, it takes a minute. And she is gorgeous,
0: by the way, in this. Like, gorgeous. Oh my oh, yeah. God, she looks so pretty. I, I don't like to reduce people to just looks, but she was beautiful. But like Ann Miller in this. It took me years of watching this to even recognize her. Like, everybody looks so different in this. And I also like that everyone looks, um, like, they have every kind of type. I mean, obviously, there are not people of color really in this film. But I I just mean, like, they don't have, like, picture-perfect people in this. There are character Mm -hmm. actresses galore, and they, like, showcase that. It's, like, all different kinds of people in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, I did, before we move on, though, I did want to circle back to the Terry um, still living in the Footlights Club because this is what annoyed me about it, and I wanted to share it with you. I feel like the papers were lauding her like, eccentric, millionaire who's an actress choosing to live at the Footlights Club. Isn't she great? And I was like, oh my God, that reminds me of like, the dad just being a dad and taking their kid to the park and people like applauding them for it. And I'm like, no, they're just being a parent. They're just like doing what's normal. Don't applaud for that. Um, they try to make it like a sisterhood, I guess they show us like all this kooky energy and they show it right off. They want us to know this is like a weird kooky place where people have cats around their necks and they can rip each other's stockings off because they're that close and they're that tough and they wear pants. So I feel like. They want us to see this eccentric kooky atmosphere to show us that she's different from other rich people. But I was super annoyed that she got applauded for just doing a basic human thing.
2: When we congratulate actors for, like, taking their kid to preschool, like, oh, you didn't have the nanny do it? Or for, like,
0: learning their lines or researching their part at all. And I'm like, everyone
2: should do that.
3: Even when, like, a child star goes to college and goes and lives in a dorm... And like, that's like a big deal. Like I watched a documentary. I'm not going to say who it was, but it was a very well-known actress who like documented her like one tiny bedroom apartment in New York and <laughs> she had to live on ramen and it was really hard. And I was like, welcome, welcome to college. But also you could have just gone home or called your parents to move. You didn't have to. to. No. Yeah.
1: So
2: it's like, per- there's a performative like, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Ooh, yes. Absolutely. And that reminds
0: me of the producer's quote at the end when he's like, "You're an actress. You belong to the people now. You can't do your own thing." Yeah. And um, like that kind of ties into that of like, mm. I guess when you're an actress, you can't be part of the normal crowd because you're not normal anymore. And I would argue that's that's a little silly. Got
2: to mm-hmm. have your own dating app. You can't can't be with the rest
0: yeah. of us <laughs> with the rest <laughs> of us normies. Uh, Gregory LaCava is the director. Um, I just want to mention that he uh, directed another film that I feel like has similar energy to this, My Man Godfrey. Um, He started off in animation and he directed some W.C. Fields shorts. And I feel like he was very good at facilitating improv and trusting his artists. So yeah, that's just like a little Gregory LaCava.
3: Reading about him a little bit, And his choice um, for this movie, I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. true because I went on IMDb. He recorded Catherine Hepburn's final monologue separate from the cast and then played it on a screen to get their reaction shots, um, which I thought was really so they were all completely stunned. So and most of them, that's one take that they're reacting that way. So I thought that was a really cool choice to be like, keep them separate. She's going to perform it separate with no one in there or no audience per se and then bring off, have them watch a screen and watch her do it if that makes sense but i thought that was a really cool director choice
1: yeah
0: i feel like he does he's really good tonally so it's like he really understands comedy but then he knows how to pull dramatic moments in so even though this plays sometimes melodramatically because like that's the time period and that's how they acted in the 30s and like that's what was normal I feel like My Man Godfrey is another good example of this. It deals with a really serious subject, but shows you the lighter side of it. And so this film, we go back and forth between that. So like Kay's suicide moment is very deep and a really huge moment. And the line she has about like, an actress is just an ordinary girl trying not to look as scared as she feels. And then we have the deep moment at the end um, of like, and the cycle continues back to the races. So I feel like he handles those moments really with, like with depth and really well, and with humanity, but then, it's also quick and funny. So I,
1: I like his tone. I like what he's able to do. I, I think this is a movie that grows every time you watch it. Like I watched it once and I was like, like, I really want to better understand what the movie was like at its core what it's trying to say, like, what is it really trying to say? Because it really it, it straddles both of those genres like multiple things is acting is amazing and it's like your heart and like you're a different breed of people look all these kooky people that found their tribe and it's amazing but also there's a suicide because it's an unfair industry and she couldn't handle it and another woman goes off and gets married and you, you don't have a great sense that she's like so in love and is so excited about her future like she decided it's what like she had to leave in my opinion leaving it i was kind of like well that's kind of not this fairy tale ending for when when she left, I wasn't like, oh, she did it. Like she found her joy. Like that's not what I felt either. And you don't feel at the end, this sense of like, and here's a little bow and it's beautiful and everyone found their joy, happy ending. Like it's not a happy ending, but it also isn't a tragic ending either. It really has this feeling of like, well, that's what it is. And I think that's a really interesting and, and a brave way to present a film like this. And, and I think that films like that mature and grow for the viewer from multiple viewings, because I think that you get different things every time you watch it. And I, and I would be really interested what I would have thought of this movie if I watched it when I was 21 trying to make it, I mean, like, this is my calling. This is what I do. Literally, like, I remember being in theater school, listening to people like, why do you want to do this? And there, a lot of people's answers was, well, I can't do anything else. This yeah. is all I can do. And that's that's what they were saying in the movie. Yes, she literally says that. And it's a positive thing when you're young. And it's a tragic thing when you're older. Yeah. And now I'm watching it with a completely different perspective on things. And I think it's a testament to how good the movie is that I think it grows with you as you're in different stages of life, and you get different things from it from multiple watching. So I'm just really impressed with it overall. It's so funny,
2: because I remember our first day at NYU the head of the program told like all of the theater kids if you can imagine yourself doing anything else you should go do that as like this flip side of how we were feeling at the time of like I can't and like we all were like we can't imagine doing anything Yeah, else. and we were it's, like we were warned we were warned of what it could be like but like to what you were saying of how great this movie is I just want to like harken back to something we were talking about earlier and kind of clarify of like, I've never seen this before. I knew nothing about it. So like when it opened up and I saw, oh, it's all these women. And I was assuming what they were going to be portraying was like, oh, they can't get along. And then I was like pleasantly surprised of how wrong I was of this was really accurate like I just felt like our story kind of was told of why those of us who left left and why it's a challenge why others succeed and why you love it even when it's hard I think it really portrays an honest like portrayal because I can't come up with a better word <laughs> this late it's at a night. depiction. <laughs> but it's really honest of that complicated re- relationship we have yeah. with the art that we love so much. Yeah. And the calla Lilies really are beautiful.
0: They are. And also, <laughs> oh, this ties in really beautifully. She has a, Catherine Hepburn has a whole chapter on this in her book. She was in a big fat flop called The Lake. That was like a rough play for her. Um, I think they said this on the Wikipedia page too. Dorothy Parker saw it and wrote about it and was like, Catherine Hepburn's performance runs the gambit of A to B. <laughs> like it was <laughs> bad part. Um, so yeah. the Calla line is from that play that failed. And so I love that they took something from a failure that was like a hardship and was a bad experience for Catherine Hepburn and put that in this film, which ends up being a success for her. So it's mm-hmm. like, yes, I love like the moving forward with that because that's what being an actor is a lot of times. Like, Lucille Ball was told in an acting class she was terrible and would never make it, and she ends up being, like, the biggest TV comedian of all time, period. So, like... Producer. Producer. She runs RKO.
3: She's the reason we have Star Trek. <gasps> See?
0: It's true. You can't, you can't it get it any true. better. It's taking all of this heartbreaking criticism and somehow moving forward with it and being lucky enough to succeed. But I felt like earlier, when I was talking, I feel like I sound so bitter about acting, and the truth is... I think I had to choose to not do it anymore. And part of the choice ends up happening for reasons we've all discussed. Like the pandemic was hitting and I was like, I don't think I'm making money at this anymore. What else can make me happy? Oh, I found this other route that I think really will make me happy. Let's try this. And so I think a lot of times when you're an actor, your whole identity is being an actor. It's like, this is all I've ever wanted. This is, you know, my heart is in this and you find identity in that. So putting down that identity and finding another path it's always depicted as tragic, but I don't think it is for any of us that have done that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, nope. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I like this film a lot. And I almost wish that they could show like someone choosing not to do it in a more positive yeah. light, but it was the 30s. So they couldn't.
2: Oh, that's right. Like it, like one other storyline. Because yeah, I remember thinking at the time when the head of the program said this at theater school, I was like, but I can see myself being an actor because I can see myself doing so many things. I could be a doctor one day and then a lawyer next day, a vampire slayer the day after that, it'd be great. And to your point, there's not this like, I left it cause I hated it. Yeah. I loved it. I love it still. I would love to still be like, is it too late for me to be this girl who comes off the bus from Kansas city with nothing in her suitcase, but tap shoes in a dream. I would love that <laughs> to still happen. I've never been to Kansas city, so I don't know how I'm getting on this bus, (laughs) but. (laughs) Like there, that heart is still there, but as you're saying, we made these choices because of life, like life happens. And I do think that's like the, maybe the missing like additional storyline of the one girl who was like, this isn't something I can continue.
3: But also like not leaving the joy behind. Like I feel, I know so many people that have left that still somehow are involved in the business or acting, you know? Um, and I, what you said about your teacher, Brian, reminds me of Sarah, we'll chime in on this. Our former acting mentor would always tell us, don't have a backup plan and don't give yourself a timeline. Like, oh, in five years, if I don't make it per se, because then you are gonna, I hate to say it fall back, but it's also like, I feel It would be interesting if they I keep saying if they did this today, this movie, but have that path of the people that maybe don't necessarily commit fully to it, but still act because I know so many people now in L.A., New York or all the acting industries that are doing multiple things and acting because it is so hard to say I'm a working actor because you can be a working actor and not make any money. So you're doing other things and doing other arts that actually make your acting better in a way. So it's like you said, like the whole, I could be a lawyer. I could be this. I'm back in school for criminal justice right now. And also at the same time, I'm like, I could then speak detective talk now on my next audition. But I think it'd be a cool route as a different ending in a way of, like you said, like a couple actors that say, you know, leave the footlight lounge yeah. or club no worries guys. I'm not sad. I'll come visit you in a year and we'll see what is the Adler
2: mentality of the growth of the actor with the growth of the
3: person, the more
2: life experiences you have that are outside of the, it's very insular being with other actors. Everyone's attractive. Everyone loves the same things going out and having life experiences only enriches your art, whatever craft you
1: pursue Mm -hmm. having other things enriches it and i think that vice versa is true as well like i know that my experience being an actor and my training influences what how, how i present myself and my success in my current profession which when you tell somebody what it is like oh it's completely different it's like no actually my background really helped me get to where I am. And I think it's just a testament of like, if and this is gonna sound so corny, but like if you just follow your joy, then you're, you're gonna be okay. Whether that's sticking with the profession and or finding a different avenue to pursue it and having this other, like while you do acting and having one influence the other, like you're a whole person. You're, you're a multifaceted individual. So as long as you take one experience and let that experience influence whatever else you're going to do, then it's beautiful. It's unfortunate that the industry itself sometimes um, I think should be and could be a little less broken and abusive. But I think that it's a testament to how wonderful it can be that people, you know, despite all the odds, stick with it and keep a part of it in their lives. And like I, as much as I talk, maybe a little bitterly about it. I am, I would never tell my daughter not to pursue it if she wanted to, because where I have been influences where I am and I'm very happy now. So, you know, it's a, it's a whole picture. I know Zoe all the way back from college. Like Zoe and I go way back. We were in the same
0: program together and I still remember you taking those independent extra like voice Mm -hmm. classes vocal classes because like that vocal production like i'm not talking singing i'm talking like vocal production classes and that's essentially what you deal in now so like that interest was there even then and you were building those skills even then without even knowing it and that was i think it's like the choice it's like you have to make the choice for yourself if you want to kind of leave acting as a profession because when i was leaving the profession zoe had the best things to say to me that really really helped. And one of the things you had said was like, I love this craft, but like the profession is difficult and you can still keep the craft. Mm -hmm. You don't have to lose the craft. Absolutely. it was like, oh my God. And so now, I mean, I'm still doing voiceover work, but like for an example, I got an audition today and, um, it wasn't like, oh God, I got to do this and drop everything and change my whole schedule. It was like, okay, I might do this later. It might be fun. And you know what I had a couple minutes before this? I did it, I had fun, I moved on with my day. There's no pressure on it, I don't need to make money off it. It was just like a little creative outlet. That's what this is, it's a creative outlet. So I think it's like finding these places for your creative outlets. And it's also been a joy learning new things about myself. Like acting was such an identity for me, such a big part of myself and something I had so much passion for. And so to find out I have other flavors in me, I have other parts of myself that get excited about other things. (laughs) My God, I didn't know that. So that's been fun. Um, But yeah, I wanted to say, I wanted to say that Zoe actually is really,
3: really eloquent about like this entire topic. Um. (laughs) It's also just such a different industry, obviously 30s to now. Um, And I think Sarah, we've talked about this on the last episode was like acting back then is definitely what it is not now because it was about being big a lot of the times and having dance and singing and this. And my great aunt, who I interviewed before that podcast, was, it's funny when you ask her opinions of movies now because she's in the academy and she votes. So I'm always like, how do you vote? And it's interesting how she views movies now because they're, it's so movies are so serious and real acting, not saying the acting back then wasn't because the performances in stage or were great, but there is a different Giant. layer now of acting style and like and it's so interesting back then that it was like you gave everything you had to sing you had to dance you had to do this versus just being as they say now
0: the style of acting back then like Betty Davis has talked about this she talked about this um on the Dick Cavett show and it's such a good interview I recommend it to everybody go watch it but she talked about how like Warner Brothers acting became the style Um, because Warner Brothers was like the quote-unquote realistic uh, movie picture studio. (laughs) They were the most realistic ones. And she was saying what a loss it is that we've lost this kind of dramatic extra in our work because now everybody's very literal. The acting in this... So we talk about how, I think in the past acting was viewed, if you could show emotion, that was considered good acting. So even though it makes no sense, the performance Catherine Hepburn gives at the end, and I love Catherine Hepburn. I'm not saying she's a bad actress because she thrives throughout this film. But the idea of what a good actress is on stage is someone who comes in and cries and is dramatic. It's like, it's over the top and ridiculous. And you're watching it going like, that doesn't even fit the scene. That doesn't even make sense. But we know it's good because you are feeling big. So I feel like that's how they used to translate like good series acting. I think it's really interesting too that this film, oh, I'm tying all the pieces together. In the beginning, she talks about like, why can't you all take anything seriously? And they're all joking throughout the film. Catherine Hepburn just wants to be a serious actress. And by the end, she finds herself in the role of a serious actress by like, living the experiences with these women who she deems as being not taking it seriously.
2: Did that make sense to that? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because she
2: found her seriousness through the unserious people. Yeah, because she says in the beginning, like, well, acting's just common sense. It's like what she says in the beginning. Yeah. I have my brain. But then she couldn't do
0: it anyway. It's ironic how bad she is, because they show her failing in this, where she just doesn't know what she's doing, and it's really rough. And you're like, you were totally mansplaining acting five seconds ago to all these ladies. Like... (laughs) And for her to call them not serious when they are giving everything to their lives and just trying to make like levity outside of their careers,
2: (laughs) it's ironic. I watched this multiple times over the last week to prepare. And the first time I watched it, I was watching with someone who is not a woman, nowhere near the theater acting industry whatsoever. He knows nothing about being an actor. So he had so many questions. He's like, "Is this what it's really like?" Or how does this happen? And how do you film it? Like, it was really funny. Hit like having an out an outsider ask about the industry. And although he did point out, and I don't, I'm maybe skipping ahead, he felt he he loves classic movies uh powell his apartment the person i was watching this with he went is that the same set from the rope
3: and is it wait but is it um constance uh constance she in rope yeah i was gonna be like she's in that movie too but it was yeah. it was such a funny conversation
2: because then i brought up because so my dad was a film editor because we're talking about how acting has changed my dad used to be a negative cutter which doesn't exist anymore because we don't film on film and so he talks about how camera angles have changed, which has also influenced how acting has changed because everything's close up, everything's digital. And so I brought up while watching this movie, oh, the rope, it's famous for only one cut. And so this person I was watching with was like, that can't be true, though. Like, how do you do that? I'm like, well, it's like a play. You rehearse it <laughs> enough times. Well, and it's not, it's
0: supposed to feel like one cut, but it's really not one cut that you can see now where they make the cuts in the dark. It's like Birdman kind of really yeah. like, oh, you. Where you made the cut there. But uh I don't think it's the same set just because that was so much later. It would be such an easy yeah. set to yeah. fake and like mock up. And this looks to me, his apartment looks like so many sets from the 30s, but it did have like the vibe of that like lush, yeah. cool rope apartment. Um, but I do love rope. Anyone's watching, go watch rope. It's like it's just cool. <laughs> it's a really cool film. Um, but yeah, Constance Collier is in mm. both of them, and she's great in both That's the she's tie so in. fun in rope. That's the tie in. <laughs> And it's got pompous males in both of them, so another tie-in. It's very rare in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up Powell, and like one of like the modern lens things that I was gonna bring up was just like he is harassing every woman that he sees, all of them. Fine, state well, it's expensive. Yeah, he's, want- he's like, come up to my apartment, allow me to get you drunk, and you're like, oh my god. I feel like at one point you're concerned for Ginger Rogers, like, oh no, is he gonna do something to her because she's drunk? Mm-hmm. He does send her home, which thank goodness. But yeah, he's like a really skeezy, really skeezy dude who pretends he has a wife and kids so no one will expect him to marry them. And um, he seduces women with money and booze and it's really gross. And it's a casting couch. Absolutely. It's a casting couch. And their careers improve by being
3: involved with yeah. in him. Do we think Kay had a thing with Pell? Because he mentions her at the end. She was in his last play. But before he, because he obviously doesn't know that mm-hmm. she died. And he's like, what about that last girl that you had last year? Oh, yeah, k so
1: she, Yeah, she's around somewhere. Yeah. And she also has that line earlier where it's like, I only can do this. I can only do, I, I can't go back to anywhere, to anyone else. And the person I can go back to, I will never go back to. So it's like this ambiguous thing. So like, uh. what if there's like a whole backstory? Like, what if they had like a sorted thing and like maybe it's, oh
3: oof. and well and then his secretary knows her because when yeah. she comes in and is like oh he's not gonna see you today i had never considered this
0: before i do think that the relationship she was talking about was from back home because they talk about in the fake play that sounds honestly like a really awful play like it does not every time they do it i'm like this play looks really bad um the fake the fictional play within the, the enchanted the play. april um enchanted april in this uh, fake show, it was like her husband left her and they'd been trying to have a baby or baby died or like something awful. And so with the sense that I got was she had a tragic relationship back home in her past. Uh, that she was, like, running away from where there might have been, like, a miscarriage or something like that. That was the impression that I got. But that does not also mean that she could not have had a relationship with Powell. My only inclination to say no is because she seems like she is of such high honor Mm. and he would think he would remember her better if he had slept with her. But I don't know. And that's a really great point to bring up. And it's 100% plausible that that could be a thing. And you've produced excellent evidence for why it could be something.
1: Yeah. And she also mentioned, too, like, this part is mine. No one can play this part. I am her. I am her. And it's like she and she's talking about this character that has a very tragic trajectory in this yeah. fake play with dead cow lilies. I want to talk about the K
0: climbing up the stairs scene. Oh, wait, before we get to the K, this part, I want to say something that I noticed that I was so proud of myself for noticing this time, which is early on in the film, Catherine Hepburn's like, it's stuffy in this room. How do we get cool here with poor people? And Ginger Rogers was like, you open a window, dummy. And she can't, like, open the window. And finally she opens the window is why she can't. The windows are open. So Catherine Hepburn opens the window and Kay Hamilton falls out of the open window that Katherine Hepburn opened. The path was established back at the beginning of the film anyway. So the scene is like, Katherine Hepburn's going to go off and do her show. She's probably going to suck at it. Kay is trying to help her. Kay has lost this part that means everything to her. Kay is starving. She hasn't eaten in weeks. She has no money And she's just losing it. She's really losing it. She doesn't feel okay, And she clearly has past trauma that there was no like therapy then that was normalized. So she could not seek help for her issues. Anyway, so they show Kay kind of losing her mind. And to me, it's like a reverse Norma Desmond because Norma Desmond is like evil insanity and Kay is just like sweet insanity. So she's climbing up the stairs and she's hearing like haunting voices and she's hearing everyone, all the girls wish Terry good luck, which they would not do. They would have said break a leg and we all know that, but whatever. She's climbing the stairs hearing these echoes and then the echoes turn into her performance from last year whereas people are saying, do you hear that applause? That's for you. You know, like this is your opening night. And it's so spooky and her shadow, the big shadow behind her and the music and her eyes eyes you watch her lose her mind and her eyeballs and it's so beautiful and heartbreaking and then you know something tragic is gonna happen to her and it is revealed that she kills herself but I think I just think that moment is so well done and that actress Andrea Leeds got an Academy Award nomination
3: I'm pretty sure for that moment alone Mm -hmm. that was like the one moment I really saw her eyes like I feel she's so i don't want to say demure i don't like that word but like throughout it she's very like kind of looking at everybody and i don't want to say squinting but that part her eyes got so big where you're like this is a different person and you're like this is she's she's gone she's gone we've lost her
2: i i remember thinking as i was watching what i thought was great about how it was staged was because i was like trying to you know figure out what was you know what was happening and i hadn't seen the end i didn't know where it was going that it was all it could easily have looked like she was also going up to go be on stage and uh, like and it, so it was this brilliant she's going to do a performance the way it was blocked and shot that she that she's going on stage so you're essentially saying like she might not even know that
0: she's killing herself. She might be so far gone that like stepping through these windows, stepping through these curtains is the
2: stage. Yeah. Wow. That's how I was reading it. Of She's gone and
1: she thinks that's her going out on stage. That's a lot of courage. I feel as a director to kind of have that scene in the same movie. Yeah, I didn't see it coming. It's, it's a scene that I would not have, especially from that time period where The movie starts and like, oh, it's going to be about women tearing down women and like how and cattiness and all the kind of things. And it wasn't. It was much more nuanced. And the fact that this movie from that time had like that scene in it with the crazy comedy and it being so funny and like it's just it's really interesting to me. I was not expecting that at all when I started. Criticism of the casting
2: couch.
0: Yeah,
1: Like,
2: it's, like, ahead of its time. So Hollywood Code had recently been
0: established. Like, there were rules that all pictures had to follow that started in 1934, and this is from 1937. But I'm wondering right now, I only just had this epiphany as, like, you guys were talking. I wonder if it got past the censors because it is, like, this playful film about women because the things like that. First of all, the casting couch got past the censors. Suicide got past the censors probably because they didn't show it. Early on in the picture, Ginger Rogers basically calls Linda a a whore. Like she calls her a prostitute, but doesn't use that language and is so quick and clever about it and happens so fast. There's a part of me that's like, do you think the censors just didn't get it? Or they thought it would go so quick or they thought people might not understand. Like they get away with a lot. And I wonder if it is because people are underestimating women, you know, like, ah, this is a women's picture. Nobody will know. It's fluff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Quite possibly. Yeah. Cause I, I did not see it coming. I was like, whoa, what? I was like, Beth dies every time I'm shocked when Beth dies. But when they go
0: from like, it's a very strange cut, but when they go from her grave to Terry's clippings of success, you're like, whoa, that was really prescient. And they show that she was 23 years old. She's lived this incredibly like full, already life, and she's only 23. Oh, just a fun thing I wanted to point out in general. Another cute little thing I caught this time was, um, so Ginger Rogers has like that act with Ann Miller and they're tap dancing at the club. And they dressed her in a top hat, which was great because Fred Astaire and her developed top hat together, top and hat. it's like his thing. So she's like, homage to Fred Astaire with my top hat. I was like, Oh,
1: I see what you all did there. That's an interesting choice. Like you have Ginger Rogers in your movie, and they do not showcase her dancing ability at all, if anything, I feel like they play it down. Like in the, when they do like, oh, like they have a practice, he's like, hey, let's run our number. Well, you know, we have the company is here. And I'm like, oh, here it is. Like, here's gonna be a little like, we have Ginger Rogers in our film. Da-da-da-da. And it's gonna be this, um, it's gonna take you out of the film because she's a struggling performer and she's not supposed to be the Ginger Rogers of America. She's not supposed to be. She's supposed to be this struggling performer who isn't like this, blockbuster person because she's struggling to make it. And they didn't do it. Like they don't show her legs or, or they do. It's very they brief. do once because you're like, Oh my god, I love your outfit that you're wearing. Oh Yeah, the little like booty shorts. And then as immediately when you feel like she's about to go into it, like full force, you're like we're gonna get some to then skeezy McSkeezerson comes in and she like immediately shuts down her arms are like flapping at her side and she's like doing the comedy angle. But she's like, I'm not really dancing. I'm not really dancing, and I'm gonna dance away off stage left, and that's it. It's like you. It's it's crazy to me. And even when she's performing with the top hat it's a it's a bit because she sees her rival there and she's like poking fun at her with like her cane and stuff. And it's not this showcase of Ginger Rogers, the way that you think that they could have easily done. Yeah. And they don't. And I'm like, it's, it's just, again, like the confidence that they'd that they have making this movie is just like crazy to How me.
2: fascinating then like to not, to have Ginger Rogers not dance or dance poorly and Katherine Hepburn have to act poorly. When, like, that's what they're most known for. And it's also really difficult to do. It's really difficult to be bad at something you are just so gifted at. Although
0: we do have, like, this kind of legend of Ginger Rogers in a way when we're talking about her dancing because she did not come up as a dancer. Like, she was not necessarily a trained dancer. She was discovered in a Charleston competition, but she, like, she didn't go to dance school. You know, it was, like, something she picked up along the way. So, like... She learned a lot um like in the business, like she kind of trained herself and didn't really know what she was doing. So it's also so interesting that now we look back on her because of like the dancing we've seen her do with Fred Astaire and how good she was, but she, she was just making it up
3: as she went along. She was being like these girls, just being really resourceful and being like, yeah, I'm gonna try this. Why not? Let's see what I got. I think that's what I love about this ginger rogers role is i used to only know her as dancer and then when i saw this movie i was like she's hysterical her wit her timing i just want to see her play more of this character um i mean she she did would have that with some of her front of stuff but this her dancing was like on the back seat mm-hmm. so it was I, that's what i loved about love about it when she wins the oscar after this for kitty
0: Foyle, which is a drama she's gonna do that in a couple years but it's also ironic because she's so gorgeous and i think she gets underestimated a lot because of how beautiful she is i love the honor of her character her character reminds me of the way i felt about the industry which is like i want to be seen for my talent i don't want to suck up to anybody i don't want to be like lecherously hit on and deal with it i don't want to suck up to anybody and as a result i really didn't get anywhere because i didn't know how to show off what i could do because i was like really shy about that industry aspect and feeling icky about it. And so I like that she displayed that, but I like that she was still able to work. Like, I, I don't know. I like that she had this like really deep sense of honor, a, like a code of ethics of what I will do and what I won't do, but I still want to try to like make it on my talent alone.
3: I just love, um, I forget her name, but like, I guess she's kind of like the helper, the one who's always like la da la-da-da. Like Hattie. Hattie, she's like my favorite. That's who I'd want to play. I want to know her story. Has she ever been a, was she an actress? Also like how many people she's seen come and go in the house and also her little heart of when she tries to give Kay some food at one point, like, oh, I'm just cooking, just trying something, test it out Mm -hmm. for me. And then with her date and stuff, but I like, she's my favorite, just the constant, and everyone's like, you could see people kind of going, oh God, she doesn't stop. Like, well, nobody stops.
0: I mean, if you play the piano, you're playing the piano in the house. If you sing, you're singing in the house. You're always like, at it, at it, at it, doing something. But I do, I wanted to ask you guys that question. If you could have played
3: any of these parts, what would you have played? And Kat, would that be the part that you would have wanted to play, Hattie? Yep, yep. Cause all she needs is one line and one little hum and go out, you know. If we have Zoe and Brienne,
1: who would you want to play? I probably would most likely be cast as the Lucille Ball character, just because she's like a little sarcastic, a little bitter, um, and like the, the sidekick kind of like, stick, like a little more sticky, but but fun. Like, I feel like that's probably where the casting director would see me, maybe. I would love to be Katherine Hepburn or Ginger Rogers, but I do not think that would happen.
2: I would love to play Ginger Rogers' character because I'd love witty repartee. Like that, I cannot get over that first scene. And just when she drops the clothes, like when she just says, mind if I hang these here, I like, we'll watch that a million times.
0: The family resemblance with the whiskers. I was like, oh, yes. So I was off. just
2: like, oh, I love it. It like It's like when Viola says to Olivia, like, oh, like beautifully done if God did all. And you're just like, oh, I love it that was a solid 12th night reference that you just dropped and they talk about 12th night in the movie. So you made it a full circle without even realizing it. Good work. Oh, I've got my 12th night notes just here on the top. (laughs) 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 But I think if I were likely to be cast, I feel like I would be cast as the Kay Hamilton role because I was also always told that I would be Beth in Little Women. And so (laughs) (laughs) like even in a comedy, I'm the character who's tragic and cries. So Oh, I just, I have a feeling that's what the cast has. Um, I, like everybody else, would
0: have like loved to have been the Ginger Rogers part. And then they would have said, no, Sarah. And I would have been fine. And I would have been what Zoe would. I would either be the Lucille Ball or the Eve Arden character. Yeah. And that's what my life would have been. yeah, Or the Ann Miller character if it was freshman year of college. And they were like, we really, we can't give you much. So one of the- <laughs> But I feel like yeah, Lucio Ball or Eve Arden is where I usually live. Um yeah. but if I could be, oh boy, would I want to be Ginger yeah. Rogers. She's got the best part. Yeah. Best part. Yeah. And the best outfit. Oh yeah, all the best outfits. The one that Ginger Rogers wore when she was auditioning, where it was like, I think it was polka dots, but it was like a small skirt. And you're like, that's a really short skirt. But then it was secretly shorts the whole time. And you're like,
1: oh my God,
0: I would wear that right now.
1: Oh yeah, that's my fave.
0: We have not talked about Eve Arden enough. And I really do love that she has that cat around her shoulders the whole time. That's my
2: favorite look. And I I wish you guys could see my notes, how many times I wrote, oh my God, the cat. Oh my God, the cat. (laughs) What a well-trained cat. Favorite costume piece. the The live cat stole
0: although remember at the end how she's like it wasn't henry it was a henrietta she had babies and i was like if you were wearing that cat like a necklace wouldn't you have guessed that that cat was having babies i'm you know just surmising here it might have gotten heavier or sensitive (laughs) i'm just saying I love that none of us want to be the Catherine Hepburn part. Like I would be it, but
2: she's not fun because she's so obnoxious. And so like, ugh. I love Catherine Hepburn. I would love to do anything she'd ever done. But I I know that I would not be cast as the highbrow woman.
3: I think it would be fun to play bad acting. Like, I think that would be fun. But overall, there's like there's also like there's not much to her that I think is fun. And even though she has some of the fun repartee with some of the other girls, it's still, I just hear Catherine Hepburn too. And I'd feel, I'd be like, I'm going to try and talk like Catherine Hepburn, you know. You can't do a Catherine Hepburn role without
2: doing a slight imitation. It's it's nearly impossible.
0: Although the best part was when she tried to talk like a poor person and she said, they think I'm not so hot. Did you hear that? I said not so hot. And you're like, oh my (laughs) God, I love you, I love you. It's
1: so good. (laughs) <laughs> She's
0: just too classy. We are now in the Modern Lens portion of this podcast. Obviously some shit that did not hold up is, um, well, first of all, just in general, this is a very white film. There is like, I think one person of color in the whole film and they are in a serving position. So like, we've got that. There's not really people of color there's this whole like backstoryline of Catherine Hepburn's family and how they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and settled in the West and beat out the Wichita Indians. And um, there's like a total lack of acknowledgement of privilege at any point in time, both in the past with her grandfather and with herself in the present.
3: So I feel like, just, she never acknowledges that she has privilege ever. And that's quite bothersome. She actually tries to like dust it off sometimes oh, or think it's normal, like when she gets there with all her luggage and all that. Yeah, you guys all have this, right? Oh my
0: God. And she doesn't know what a sleeping mask is because she probably has those big, thick curtains around her bed that all those rich <laughs> people had in the past. I use a sleeping mask to this day, everybody, because why not? It's great. It takes out the sun and you can sleep. Okay, anyway. Oh, I wrote the producer behavior. Uh, I was very annoyed by all of his behavior. His behavior as a producer, his behavior is like straight white man, his behavior as a harasser. All of his
1: behaviors were pretty toxic and terrible in general. Yeah, him around. saying that, oh yeah, they shouldn't, they can't make it. Most of them should have just stayed home and have babies. I think it's literally a line he says. I was like, oh, yeah. It made me think of that crazy producer on Broadway who's now been like shunned.
3: At least we're trying to call it out now. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of scary when you look, watch this and you're like, the fact that we all have references in our current world, or I'm sure maybe in, in our backgrounds of studying and stuff. I mean, I had a teacher in college acting school. I had a scene partner who was volatile. Like he was awful. He like was violent to people and I was not comfortable. And I went to my teacher and I just said, Hey, do you have any tips for rehearsal? And all he said was cat, stop being a woman. (gasps) And I was like, this was only, I mean, 15 years ago, but I was like, Oh wow. Okay. I love that I still was shocked, even though it's like,
0: we I I have terrible stories too. And like, just the abusive aspect of theater, but when we glorify the abuse too, and we're like, no, but it's art. And like, no, that's abuse. Like, this is an abusive environment. I wish we could call it what it was and move on. Um, so yeah, I feel like that doesn't hold up. On that note, we're gonna move on to the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, then you would like, fill in the blank. I'm gonna say, obviously, the women because it's like a similar vibe, ensemble, female cast, a lot of great comedians. I feel like All About Eve would pair very well with this, you know, women in the acting world. Um, I wrote down, uh, I've never seen this film, but there's this film called Dance Girl Dance that Lucille Ball is in, that's directed by Dorothy Arzner, who was like the only female director of her day, pretty much. Um, It sounds really melodramatic, but it might be a fun pairing with this. So I haven't seen it, but it might be fun. And then um, I wrote down like Morning Glory, which was Katherine Hepburn's first uh, Academy Award role, which is also about like an actress trying to make it. Alice Adams about class, also Catherine Hepburn. I wrote My Man Godfrey because similar tone, same director, uh, Gregory LaCava. I wrote, um, <laughs> I wrote Fame. Yeah. From 1980. <laughs> yes. You I know, that. that would be fun. Um, I wrote A Chorus Line and Every Little Step, which is the documentary about, a chorus line which shows like the casting process that they went through, and it's really fascinating. And then finally, I chose Center Stage, which everyone knows is the greatest film of all time. Yes. I was just gonna say that I love we Center are, Stage, oh, yeah. so I love it. We can't do it on this podcast because it's not 25 years old yet, but it's like one of my favorite movies. It's getting there, ever. right?
3: Yeah, oh, 2000. I also just thought it's probably not even in that world, but I just love Noises Off and uh, mm-hmm. the, the film version of it, and I that's just a wacky movie of like making fun of behind the scenes of like yeah. a play. I actually think the movie's great. I remember seeing the play and be like, oh, I saw the movie first.
1: And I was like, I actually think the movies does a really good job. I mean, Carol Burnett's in it. So it's like, you know, you can trash anything all you want, but it's like, but Carol Burnett's in it. Like he, it there's a certain level of prestige <laughs> with just that fact. Cause he's amazing. Being Julia is an interesting
3: movie oh, of like yeah. the theater world and yeah. how like her husband's the producer and you know, that other female actress in it. And how she turns the tables
2: to get the win at the end. So my double feature, I did the same thing I did last time where I forgot how the assignment worked and I chose something more recent and like, it's not about theater, but it's a 1998 movie called the last days of disco with uh, Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale's first American film. And uh, for all you Gilmore Girls fans, Chris Eigman, who plays Jason (laughs) Styles, It is also about these two women from different classes of how they grew up, but women in their 20s in New York City in a specific time period, navigating their careers and dating. And obviously this is in then, it takes place in the early eighties because it's the last days of disco.
0: You did the assignment. Plus, okay, there is no assignment. no one ever should feel pressure, but that was very nice. I think that was very thoughtful. I always feel bad because I'm like, I'm here are the 27 films that I was writing down while I was watching
1: this. You said everyone that I was gonna say, like I was obsessed with all about Eve when I was younger. Um, I, wa- I think I've watched it like a bazillion times, although I haven't seen it since I was that age. So I would be curious to see what I think of it now, especially compared to this movie. So that in and of itself makes me think that'd be a great little feature because I literally want to watch it now after discussing this film. Oh, there's one
0: thing that I did want to say. Since I have watched this, I cannot get what I did for love out of my head from a chorus line. Does anyone else huh. have this similar sensation? It's all I can
2: think about. It's like, now I'm going to. They're like going up the stairs <laughs> and now I'm like, ah. Kiss today.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> right? It's all I can think about what I
0: did for love. So I guess that would be when you're done watching this episode, go listen to that song and feel like an actor and or slash dancer in that case. Thank you so much for being here and for doing this podcast with me. Yay, Thanks woo-hoo. for having us. Yeah, and it was uh, fun. We will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. And now we close like a sad clam. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Kat Day, Zoe Palco, and Breanne Wilson. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TalkClassicToMe for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.